0: Hey everybody! This is Science on the Side. My name's Ty. I'm Morgan. And we have an incredible story to tell you today about our own—maybe not homegrown—but he's a professor here at the University of Utah named Mario Capetti.
1: Yeah, his story to me could honestly be made into a movie, and I would probably ball through the whole. Thing. I would.
0: I, I was. I was just about to say we're gonna have to like probably keep the emotions in check this time because I feel like aspects of aspects of his story will make you. Come to tears for sure.
1: Yeah, we've had a couple moments in lab. Oh yeah, reading over his story where we were both almost in. Yeah, just tears, like just oh just my gosh. It. Yeah, yeah. It's incredibly inspiring, which is why we want to tell it. And I think it's a story that's not as, um, not, well known. Not as well known. Not as widely acknowledged as a lot of the big scientists that you've heard of before.
0: I think it's a great story. I've Just. Just an absolute story of of triumph and, and overcoming adversity to achieve the highest levels of intellectuality, I think.
1: So we want to start out with his adult years.
0: Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that.
1: So Mario Kopecki attended Antioch College in Ohio, small liberal arts college. And he was a young man at the time, who wanted to change the world. He wanted to make the world more equitable and a better place for everyone to live. That's really what he sought, and I think that's very noble. He decided that studying political science would be the way to do this.
0: Sure. Seems logical, right? (laughs) (laughs) It'd be interesting to know a little bit more about why he kind of originally started off as a political science major.
1: Yeah. But he quickly discovered that there was no real science in polit- political science. And so he switched to the physical sciences. And I just love that he says that because that rings very true to me. Totally, totally. My mom was a political science major. Oh, was she really? And I always give her a hard time because she has a Bachelor of Art in political science. It's not a Bachelor of Science. I am like about to It's ask. because it's not a science. Do
0: they have BS degrees in political science?
1: I don't know. Yeah, but he quickly realized it's not a science, and he likes science, so he decided to switch and and uh, started studying chemistry and physics.
0: I mean, hard switch.
1: Which, like, woof. Right. <laughs> <laughs> chemistry and physics,
0: right? Yeah. Coming
1: I, from as a biologist, that just sounds horrible. Well, he was coming
0: from a political scientist, right? So he wanted right. to do political science, <laughs> and then maybe you would think. We go biology because biologists can't do math, right? But then he goes to like the absolute most difficult basic sciences you could. Yeah. Chemistry and physics.
1: Yeah. And I think he probably had a background in physics. We'll talk about his uncle. Oh, that's right. Who's uh-huh. a pretty well-renowned physicist.
0: It was in the genes. That'll be relevant <laughs> later, right?
1: Yes. Very <laughs> <laughs> little uh, foreshadowing yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, But he... Um, Graduated in 1961 with a degree in chemistry and physics. And then he went to MIT as a graduate student.
0: Yeah, right off the bat. In chem- in, chem- in molecular biology? Was it molecular biology?
1: Uh, or he started in chemistry? He started in physics and math.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: But he became very interested in molecular biology. He said he was taken by the wave of molecular biology.
0: It had to be real hot. It was so hot. Yeah. That was
1: 1960s is when it was just on fire. It was really being born at that point, honestly.
0: Right, right, right.
1: And while he was at MIT studying physics and math, he became um, acquainted with James Watson. Interesting. And this is a household name.
0: Yeah. Most people will know who James Watson is. Any
1: scientist out there will certainly have heard of James Watson. And I think probably your average non-scientist would know it's who Watson It's hard to know. Is, We're so
0: immersed in this world, right? <laughs>
1: I feel like I've known who he is forever. Yeah,
0: but. yeah. I'm with you. I feel like if you went to college and you took a biology class, you've probably heard that name. Um, but for those who don't know, James Watson and Francis Crick won the Nobel Prize and excluded... Um, what was her name Rosalind Ro- Rosalind Fra- Franklin, Franklin right? Um, for their re-
1: discovery of the structure of DNA
0: right, right. Discovering the double helix.
1: So this was in nineteen in the 1960s.
0: and now we have one of the graduate students in James Watson's lab.
1: Yeah, so uh, Mario Capecchi was kind of wooed by James Watson and jumped ship to Harvard. So nothing like just being able to step over from MIT to Harvard. And Which
0: is literally across the street.
1: It is literally across <laughs> the street. But, you know, the barrier, It's buried, a different university, the, yeah. The academic barriers to get into either one of those schools is incredible. So he, he must have been well accomplished at this point. Yeah, you
0: know? yeah. It really does read that way in everything that we, we studied, that he was a remarkable student and an incredible laboratorian, if you will. It's interesting to think about what molecular biology consisted of in the 1950s, 60s. I mean, okay, so they knew DNA. I don't even know if they knew RNA yet, right? They knew nucleic acid carried genetic. There was no PCR.
1: No, not at that point. I don't know that there was... They were doing X-ray crystallography. So they were looking at X-rays of structures of genetic material. Wow. Yeah. He did phenomenally there. Watson loved him, uh, which I think also is foreshadowing because Nobelists breed Nobelists. Yeah, yeah. We we are talking about a lot of Nobelists on this podcast, and I think it's easy to because they most of them have cool stories. They're cool people. Right. They make great discoveries, but it's kind of incestuous. Yeah,
0: I know a lot of them have come from labs in which they received a, a Nobel Prize.
1: Uh, Kopecky liked being in Watson's lab, he was known to be a very rigorous student, putting 80, 90 hour weeks in regularly, but thriving off of that. Yeah. I can't think of much worse.
0: Honestly. <laughs> Honestly. Yeah.
1: I've had a couple of really busy weeks recently. I want- and I was doing like 60 hour weeks and it's like, ugh.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not in any way trivializing what they did, but I feel like they had it almost more difficult. I feel like they probably had to spend more time finding articles in the library.
1: There was no internet. There was no internet. How would you do what we do with no internet? Yeah. And can you imagine writing your PhD thesis on a typewriter? Oh. You make an error or you want to take out a paragraph, you have to redo the whole thing.
0: Yeah, I couldn't imagine. I couldn't imagine. So, I, again, I'm not in any way trying to trivialize his 80, 90 hour work weeks. But I'm just wondering, was half of that in the library trying to find articles? Just looking or for a writing, <laughs> Yeah, or writing snail mail letters to people to be like, hey, could you send us a copy of your article so that we can yeah. read it? You know what I mean? And then they got to, you know, wait to get it and read it. And, okay, uh, okay. Anyway. Anyhow, Capecchi was a rock star. He's in Watson Cr- no, he's in uh, James Watson's lab.
1: And when he graduates in 67, he immediately gets a professorship at Harvard.
0: Boy, quite different than it is today, huh?
1: Yeah. That's not what it's like today.
0: Yeah. I mean, so he just finishes his PhD. Yep. And gets offered uh, an assistant or an associate. Assist- professor-
1: well, uh, assistant associates- first.
0: assistant first. Okay. Yeah. So assistant professorship.
1: Mm-hmm. And um, up until 1971, in which he got an associate professorship, so that's a pretty quick turnaround too, just a few years. Yeah, um, where he was like a full professor at Harvard,
0: associate professor, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, and then in seventy three, so just two years later, he made the move to University of Utah.
0: Yeah, and I guess we don't know exactly how this went down, but we do know that there was a pretty um, well known geneticist here at the University of Utah, Carl Lark who we kind of suspect recruited him here uh, really sold Utah on the collaborative or sold Mario Capecchi on the collaborative environment here at Utah.
1: Yeah. So he said that Carl Lark, who recruited him here, had a very good taste in scientists, had an Mm -hmm. excellent taste in scientists, which I just thought was a –
0: Yeah, very classy.
1: Fun little uh, thing that he thought about the guy who recruited him here. He was creating a new department – I think it was the genetics department that he came to.
0: Yeah, because originally I think it was just a biology department. Yeah,
1: yeah, and then Capecchi actually helped recruit in some other faculty too that are still well-renowned here.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the director of our Cancer Institute was recruited by Mario Kipecki, Um as well as another.
0: John uh, Roth. John yeah, Roth. Who was a microbiologist, microbial geneticist down in, biology.
1: Yeah. So they really were just trying to create this new department that had a lot of really great scientists. And um, Capecchi said, you know, I loved Harvard. The world was my oyster basically, but everyone was an island unto themselves. There wasn't collaboration. Um, there wasn't you know, this community. And Mm -hmm. I wanted that. And Mm -hmm. so he was drawn to Utah because of that. I think that's true about Utah. I think that he, um, came here for the right reason. I think a lot of people come here for that reason. Yeah. Yeah. He also was drawn here for the scenery scenery of Utah.
0: Can't, you can't beat it.
1: If you haven't been to Utah, come. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. He loved sports. He loved physical activity, loves physical activity. Yep. Um, I've heard rumor. I don't know if this is true or not, but I heard that he lives up in one of the canyons and during the winter he parks at the bottom of the canyon and he skis to and from his house to his car. Wow. Before driving into work because he loves that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I've run into him at the gym before here.
0: Have you really? Yeah.
1: He's 83 years old right now. I'm pretty sure. 84 maybe. He pumps iron.
0: No, he's jacked. He's rich. He's a jacked old man. He's 5'4". Fi- sure. he's,
1: he's just this little teeny old dude. And there are not very many older people working out at the gym. It's mostly for students. Right. And he pumps iron. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, he's got arms like he looks like he plays for the Bears, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, he's a big dude. Yeah. And in fact, when he won his Nobel Prize... The the chair of the genetics department at the time for his University of Utah ceremony said, you know, I wasn't quite sure if I should give him a, a parking spot outside the genetics building or outside the gym because <laughs> he was there so much. <laughs> to
1: be honest, he should get one of, one of each. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> well, he did get a road.
1: <laughs> the, <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> the road named after him.
0: <laughs> yeah, he got a road. But yeah, two parking spaces. I think we could spare it, you know?
1: Yeah. So jumped ship to Utah. He came here, he's been here ever since.
0: I think it speaks a lot to him and his character to have stayed here as long as he has.
1: Yeah, he's kind of a big fish in a small pond. I mean, Utah's awesome, but he's our only Nobelist.
0: Sure. Oh, we were going to look at the other... Nobel prize winners at Pac-12 schools because oh, yeah? I mean we're in we're in good company here with like Berkeley, UCLA, Stanford, University of Washington. But I don't think, I mean I don't know, maybe there's a school in our conference that doesn't have a Pac uh, a Nobel laureate. There's yeah, gotta be I don't Oregon know. State. There's no way they got one. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: nice. No way. Oregon too for that matter.
1: <laughs> Let's see. So, while he was here, so he came here in 73 and he started um, receiving funding for his research. But he started to have some kind of wild ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some tools that were lacking in the genetics field. Yeah. And he thought, what if I make new tools? And I don't mean physical tools, but I mean ways of being able to study genes. Mm-hmm. And He started thinking about these ideas and they were kind of revolutionary ideas. They were different. Oh, yeah. They would greatly improve the field, but they were kind of wild for the time.
0: They were very forward-thinking.
1: He applied for funding and was rejected from um, the NIH, National Institutes of Health, who funds a lot of the public research at universities. And his grant was rejected for... these experiments um, and what they said was that (laughs) his ideas were deemed likely unlikely to succeed and not worthy of pursuit
0: i had to be completely discouraging yeah i mean we've both had grants rejected before never anything that Uh, like personal words of like, (laughs) right. Yeah. But still rejection is rejection and it's hard to take and to have something so personal like that. Yeah. It had to be, I had to sting.
1: Yeah, for sure. He didn't back down from his ideas. Mm -hmm. He really was confident in himself and his own understanding of genetics. And he knew that his ideas would work and continued pursuing them. So he used money from other grants to kind of work on this project that he kept going back to the NIH trying to get funded for.
0: Which was a risk, right? I mean, it's a huge Mm -hmm. risk because now if you divert all these funds from other projects to this project and it doesn't work, you're going to have to write a progress report on how you spent that money and what it went to and what the results were. And if you can't generate any worthwhile data. You're going to lose all your money, which means you're going to lose your position.
1: Yeah. Interestingly, when he finally got this funded, they explicitly, like he had a, a note written to him that was like, sometimes we're wrong and we were wrong. Yeah. And, yeah. and so he they got keep, the funding for it. Yeah.
0: They keep pursuing this. They have some data. They reapply for these grants. And uh, Yeah probably doesn't, we don't even know who said, but somebody wrote, you know, it's a good thing that you can't, you didn't listen to us or something to that
1: effect. Yeah. So I'm trying to think how to like actually phrase this. So I just want to talk about what he was actually doing to revolutionize this field.
0: Mm, Yeah. Okay.
1: When we do a lot of our research, what we're trying to figure out is how genes function in our bodies You and I both do this. We have specific genes in humans that we are interested in studying and understanding how one specific gene affects how our bodies function.
0: And this is important for diseases like cancer, cardiovascular disease. In order to really study how these diseases work, we have to study them on a genetic level. And one of the ways that we're able to do that now is by knocking a gene out. And we use this in our mouse models. And if we can eliminate that gene, and if we can even eliminate it in a tissue-specific manner, then we can study how that gene behaves and what effect it has on tissues and disease development.
1: Yeah, so I, I do this all the time. One thing that I look at is obesity. I study obesity, and I study how one specific gene leads to... Um, protection from obesity. And when mice don't have that gene, they become obese. And so the way that I study that is by knocking out that gene in mice or deleting it, basically removing that gene saying, that's the only variable here. That's the only thing that I'm changing. Now what happens? Right. And this was not a tool that was available.
0: Yeah. Early 1980s, this was not available. I think they could do this in bacteria. They could do this in yeast, maybe worms, But nobody was doing this in a mammalian system. Yeah. And that's what Mario really goes on to develop.
1: Yep. And that's what he eventually wins his Nobel Prize for is creating the tool that allows us to study individual genes and how they function in the body. Yeah. And it really is a Nobel Prize winning idea because we use this. Every single day. And pretty much every molecular biologist and geneticist
0: every single uses this now. Academic lab around the world is using, I shouldn't say every single, any academic lab around the world who's using mouse models is using mice that are lacking one gene or another. Yep. It has revolutionized molecular biology, disease physiology, you name it. How we understand biology has been impacted by his discovery.
1: You, I mean, you can't quantify how molecular yeah, biology has been impacted. So this is a different type of um, impact than, say, Barry Marshall. Sure. Right? Curing a disease and saving many people's lives. Well, this is basic research. Mm-hmm. So he created a tool for others to utilize to make those discoveries. But those discoveries have led to countless drugs that have been developed and um, treatments for diseases and cures for diseases. Yeah, and and you really just can't quantify no, how can't. impactful you can not because
0: he he created a tool that anybody can use to study any number of diseases and their combinations. And you know he made this discovery back in the late eighties. Yep. Right. So, and we were just talking about this before the the podcast. I'm not quite sure to what extent genetically altered knockout mice were available before or directly after his, but we can speak to, you know, 30 years post this discovery. You can go onto Jackson lab's website and order thousands, literally thousands of genetically engineered mice lacking genes.
1: It's crazy. There's a whole industry based around this.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, it's, are, exactly there's a whole industry around it and it's arguably one of the most important discoveries of the 20th century in my yeah. opinion yeah I mean just for what it has enabled scientists to do since then and allowed us to discover since then Absolutely. and he is Utah's own and I love that
1: yeah I do too and he made this discovery um kind of in parallel with some professors I think that They did a lot of their work pretty independently of one another and came to similar conclusions Mm -hmm. and kind of worked together right at the very end of it. So he shared his Nobel prize with Oliver Smithies from UF UNC and Sir Martin Evans of Cardiff university in Wales. So three way split of his Nobel prize that he got in 2007. In the meantime, he also was receiving other prizes. Uh, He was really well recognized for this work and, um he received the Kyoto Prize in Japan, which is, I think, like the highest uh, science prize that they offer in Japan. Mm. Since that time, he's been able to kind of explore a lot of different avenues and recent work of his I just find really interesting. Tell
0: that story when he came and spoke at BYU when you were there. <laughs> yeah, when I was an
1: undergrad, he came and gave like a big university keynote address and then he had a um, smaller like science heavy uh, talk and I don't remember tons of the details but there are a couple th- stories that stood out to me. One was that the professor down at BYU that introduced him had worked in his lab and was very impressed by um, his dedication to his own work and also his um, willingness to help others. And so the story that he told about Mario Capecchi was that if anyone ever came and asked to borrow a reagent or a chemical or anything, Mario Capecchi would gladly give it up without a second thought. And when it was returned, he would promptly throw it in the garbage and make something fresh because he didn't want to possibly (laughs) contaminate his own stuff.
0: That's great. That's great.
1: I thought that was a great story and, and never tell anyone that he was going to throw this stuff away. Yeah, sure. Not get
0: upset. Like, oh, I have to throw this away now.
1: Yeah, no, he was glad to share it, Yeah, but he didn't want to ruin his own stuff. And then the other thing that I remember was that he said to the audience, the scientific audience, you, you all, when you're in the shower, you wash yourself from your head to your toes, right? He said, if any of you don't wash yourself that way. If you start at your feet and go up, come talk to me after this talk. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, where in the world Poor is this Morgan, going? Morgan, as a freshman
0: in college, for the first time hearing this, being like, what is he talking about?
1: Well, what I knew him for, I knew him for his genetic knockout. And so I'm like, he's off his rocker. Like, yeah, what? Yeah. What, what? what are we
0: talking about now?
1: But it turns out that he is studying um, OCD and other like psychiatric disorders. Yeah. And one of those is in mice that overgroom themselves and it's a model that he uses for OCD. And they've actually found that they can do bone marrow transplants and from from these mice that overgroom themselves and transplant in bone marrow from normal mice and they cure their habit of overgrooming themselves. Wow. And uh, he doesn't suggest doing bone marrow transplants for people with OCD because that's a pretty-
0: Huge procedure. Huge
1: and risky procedure. Yeah. But um, they've studied a lot of the um, actual science behind it. And they know that a lot of the immune cells that go into your brain to protect from disease are abnormal in a lot of psychiatric diseases. And so these are- um, for those scientists out there, it's the microglia that they are studying specifically, but it's just a uh, an immune cell type in the brain, and
0: can amount to a dendritic cell or a macrophage?
1: Macrophage, yeah, a in the brain, brain, brain. Macrophage, yeah, and um, when they can irradiate mice, get rid of their own immune system, and replace it with normal immune system uh, cells, then they cure these mice. And so he's focusing on kind of an interesting field that I don't think has as much research into the actual biology behind psychiatric disorders. I think
0: that's extremely fascinating. And and in reading about him, he really does. He seems to be somewhat very interested in this idea of how the environment can influence genes Mm -hmm. and how they're controlled. But I just personally, it's just my own personal thing. I think the immune system is just incredible.
1: It really is. It's incredible.
0: Okay. So That's Mario Capecchi, but how did he get to be the person that he is?
1: Mario Capecchi has one of just the most. It
0: really should be a movie. You were right. You hit that on the head.
1: And Maybe one day it will be. Maybe Maybe because of this podcast episode. I
0: hope we get some credit for it, too. Yeah,
1: the big producers are really, you know. Yeah,
0: they're taking (laughs) note.
1: We're going to see some real money from this, Yeah, yeah. But when he received a lot of these awards and they asked him to give speeches, he rarely talked about his scientific work. Mm-hmm. He talked about his childhood years and how those years formed who he is and, and really gave him the reason for doing what he does. Yeah. So in 1937, he was born in Italy.
0: Verona, right? Verona, Italy. Northern Italy.
1: Yep. His father was an Italian airman and his mother was an American poet. Mm -hmm. And his mom came from a family that had artists, uh, poets, physicists, um, very well educated people. So, like you said, I think uh, being a successful scientist was in his genes.
0: So, totally, totally.
1: But his mom also got involved and ally- allied herself with a lot of anti-fascist groups during um, World War II, during these war years in right. Italy.
0: She was very anti-Nazi. She even she taught literature in some French universities. She associated with anti-fascist groups.
1: Yeah, she was really a crusader herself.
0: Yeah, she was. Um,
1: and I don't think that his dad was really around very much. Um
0: he, he mentions that his mom and dad had a passionate love affair, um, but that his mother was wise to not marry him and that his dad was bitter because of it.
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, but his, his mom, through her affiliations with these groups and through her activism, um, actually ended up being arrested and taken to a concentration camp when Mario Capecchi was three years old. She knew that this was coming, and in the days leading up to it, she sold all her possessions and gave her money to a family and asked them to take care of her son. And then she was taken, and, and Mario watched his mom being dragged away by the Gestapo to Dachau concentration camp in Germany.
0: Unbelievable. Unbelievable. You just think about how traumatic it probably was for him, too. I mean, not just a mother, but as a three-year-old.
1: But um, he was taken care of by this family for a year, and he lived on a farm during this time. Uh Um,
0: Very simple life. They grew their own wheat.
1: He played with chickens.
0: They played with chickens. They would mash grapes for wine, I'm assuming.
1: He had his first encounter with the war while he was living there. Americans that's right American planes were uh, flying overhead and just started shooting and he got shot in the leg as a four-year-old oh, that's right yeah. and he was fine yeah I mean but as fine as you can be from getting shot in the leg
0: from, airplane from an overhead, airplane overhead right
1: after a year yeah his the money kind of dried up quickly he even mentioned that he isn't sure about this but he has suspicions that his dad figured out about the situation and strong armed the rest of the money from the family. Oh really? Yeah. He doesn't know that for sure, but he said the money kind of quickly dried up and Jeez. they couldn't afford to keep him. So they put him out on the street as a four year old. Okay.
0: Who are these people? Like what <laughs> world is this?
1: You know, I, it, they were in the middle of a war. I try not to judge them because I, I don't know, know their I circumstance know. and they had their own young children and they I had know. taken care of him for a year. But, it,
0: Still, I, I, I couldn't. I couldn't put a four year old on the street. No, sorry.
1: He so he's homeless
0: at four years old. At
1: four years old. And he gets the idea to go and find his dad in northern Italy. And
0: in, a, in a place that's like, what, 160 miles away or something?
1: Yeah, he, he treks 160 miles to try and find his dad as a four year old.
0: So in another year and a half, I want you to just abandon your son and tell him to travel 160 miles on his own.
1: Oh my gosh. He would last like four minutes.
0: (laughs) Right. Nowadays, right. He'd be swooped up by the first cop. Like, oh, "Oh, uh, where are you going, kid?
1: (laughs) For sure. But um, he became... Uh, kind of just a street rat for the next few years. I mean, how
0: tough is he?
1: Yeah, he he stole um, stole food, bread, and you know fruit from open air stands with other kids. They would kind of devise ways to steal food, but he became severely malnourished during this time.
0: He would stay in like little uh, homes. For like, uh, what am I thinking of? What's the term?
1: Orphanages. Orphanages
0: from time to time, but only for short periods of time. Mm -hmm. You know, especially when he was malnourished. But then they just turned him right back out on the street.
1: Yeah, and he um, actually joined, I think, a Mussolini youth battalion for a short stint too. Oh, sure. Didn't stick there, which is good. A good thing. Yeah. He actually found his dad and stayed with him for. A, sh- a brief time but his dad also turned him out um and over the course of the next five years he was homeless and barely surviving five years old during world war two.
0: i mean for five years, for so the next like five four, years four to the four time he was nine years
1: old and he was in and out of hospitals um because he was dying on the streets and hallucinating and and, like, caretaker orphanages would find him and bring him to the hospital. Um, and then the moment that he was healthy enough to be lucid, they'd release him and he'd be back on the streets by himself. So no school. I mean, obviously, that's not even
0: no school. a question. Yeah, no school, but no no cognitive caretaking to set the framework to begin to learn in a school-type environment.
1: Or, or in a community-type environment. Yeah. He's yeah. a child that was stealing food to survive.
0: It's, it's. Um, I mean, it's really just, it, it leaves you speechless. Because I couldn't imagine nowadays a little band of six-year-olds running around the streets. No. You know what I mean? Like, that is just not anywhere on our consciousness. No. You know? But, you know, in the middle of a war in a war-torn country that was being ruled by a brutal dictator at the time who was in cahoots with another brutal dictator at the time. I mean, I imagine, I don't know what it was really like, but it seemed like it was just chaos.
1: A war-torn country. Yeah,
0: it was just chaos.
1: Um, Mario Capecchi ended up in a hospital in Bologna. Is that how you would say that?
0: I'm not quite sure, but it sounds good to me. looks like
1: Bologna. Bologna.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Bologna, yeah. Uh, Yeah, um, if somebody in Italy wants to email us, uh, email us, uh, science on the side podcast at gmail.com, you can go ahead and uh, correct us on our pronunciation there.
1: And he was in this hospital because of malnutrition again. And he says that he remember, he remembers, um, laying naked on a bed that had no blanket and he was, and no pillow and he was feverish and he was, in and out of hallucinations um, and wasn't able to stay conscious for long periods of time. And so he thought he was dying. He knew he was dying. And most children that were in there, they said the beds were just lined up one after the other and each, every bed had a kid in it.
0: I just imagine this huge dormitory. Yeah. With just a dinky little mattress no sheet no pillow
1: so dirty and
0: yeah so dirty and just these dirty homeless naked dying dying naked children lined up
1: and all that they could provide him there was a daily bowl of chicory coffee and a small crust of bread to treat him for malnutrition and he Uh, also thought that he had typhoid. He says this later. He got tested for typhoid antibody and he was positive. Um, So he's pretty sure that he had typhoid while he was there as well. But unbeknownst to him, the U.S. had liberated the Dachau uh, concentration camp and his mom had gotten out. And for a year, she had been looking for him. Um
0: we were just talking about how hard it is to do research without the internet. How in the hell do you find your child in a country when you are hundreds of miles away in another country? You have to make it back to Italy, and then what You what do you do? Where after, do you start?
1: After spending five years in a concentration yeah, camp. Yeah,
0: so she's probably malnourished and disease-ridden as well, right? She can't be in the best of health.
1: And traumatized. And
0: traumatized beyond belief. And now she's got to go back and try and find her nine-year-old son.
1: Remember, he was three the last time she saw him. Right. Y- your child doesn't look the same between the ages of three and nine.
0: Yeah. How did they even know? There's no-
1: Yeah, And she didn't, I mean, she didn't have assurance that he was alive. Sure. Let alone that he would ever be found. So she looked for him for a year. I would love to know how she did that. Yeah. But she did. And she found him. And I think that she incorporated a little bit of theatrics here, but she found him on his ninth birthday. He, I will say he says that.
0: He says that, yeah. That yeah. that
1: she may have coordinated it, but she found him in the hospital on his ninth birthday, and um, he didn't recognize her, but she told him that she was his mom, and he saw it as a ticket out, so he okay was like, sure, great, yeah. yeah.
0: Oh, I was thinking, do you think he, he, but he said he didn't remember his mom.
1: No, he didn't remember what, well, he didn't remember what What she she looked looked like. Like. Okay. Yeah. He didn't recognize her, but he recalls a lot of these stories, like getting shot in the leg, Mm -hmm. walking to find his dad. Like he, those are his memories. Um, and he said that when, once he won the Nobel prize, a lot of them were substantiated. He had someone who worked in one of the orphanages reach out to him and say like that's so incredible that you survived i remember you as a child and and they were able to have a common memory that wasn't like public knowledge that really confirmed like yes this is is where i was and so that helped fill in a lot of gaps Mm -hmm. of his knowledge on exactly where he was in what years during this time but, but when his mom came to pick him up, she brought him a new clean outfit, which he hadn't had in six years, including uh, an alpine hat. You know, can you picture like a little like yodeling person yeah, and a like German that style. German style yep. hat with a feather coming out on the side? And uh-huh. he said he still has that hat. And um,
0: they should put that over in the genetics building.
1: She brought him to Rome. To process some paperwork because she wanted to come to the United States. She had family here. She she was American herself. Mm-hmm. And her um, younger brother sent money over to buy tickets to come to the United States for her and, and Mario. Yeah. And when they were in Rome, he had a bath. And it was his first bath in six years.
0: I would imagine they probably played in the river from time to time. But still, <laughs> like a nice warm bath.
1: Woo! Man. Probably looked like a different kid after that. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He had a really, I mean, not that all of this wasn't life-changing, but a real life-changing experience. Oh, yeah. Coming to the United States.
0: Sure. Uh, I mean, so is the, the uncle provides some money. They come to the United States. The uncle's in Pennsylvania and is part of a a Quaker society. And... They come and they live with the uncle in this commune.
1: Yep. So his uncle was Edward Ramberg. He was, he was the physicist. He was a physicist himself. And he had started um, and founded a, a Quaker commune um, just north of Philadelphia. And he and his wife took in Mario and his mom and really promised to protect them and kind of provide them. a a sustainable life his uncle was very kind very strict um, very loving his uncle and aunt and so was the whole community
0: and was he the one that was involved with the the development of the television so um (laughs) this is a great story they've got they've got a quaker uncle who is involved with the development of the television which is brand new back in the you know 1940s 30s and uh there was no television allowed in the home however
1: he was really disappointed in himself for this invention that he helped with and so he he nixed the tv in their house
0: yeah must have been quite the shock to come to this country that was still intact and to be accepted into this community of people that were willing to take care of him and his mom and provide this safe place for them to live.
1: Quakers are known for their sense of um, community community and support. Um, in fact, <laughs> I thought this was interesting, but Quaker Oats actually has nothing to do with Quakers it's It's a gimmick. It's a marketing ploy. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the reason why it got its name is because Quaker businessmen were known for being honest and trustworthy. And so the people that were making Quaker Oats wanted a trustworthy brand. and that's where the name came from. And that's how he describes his next phase of his life mm-hmm. was that he needed to heal. And he needed to learn how to live among other people in a society. He said that he actually would go to a child psychologist um, in these early days because he couldn't sleep. And he just had nightmares about, um, understandably, everything that he had gone through. And he said the professionals were not very helpful, but the supportive community that he was a part of was very helpful and that they would have nightly activities and that they would get around fires and sing songs and, and have dances and, and, you know, act and perform um, for each other. And this was really um, the treatment that he needed. And he said that there's much to be learned from his experience that could be applied to others that um, especially children that may be going through Um, really hard things.
0: Traumatic experiences. I mean, we evolved as social animals, you know, and uh, I think we do best in groups and in these small supportive communities. So uh, that's, I mean, his life story is just a testament to that, in my opinion.
1: He said that he received little or no formal education or training on living in a social environment. And he said that his uncle and aunt took on the challenge of converting him into a productive human being and that it was a formidable task. And school would be one way to really... Socialize. um, ...quickly establish rules and teach someone how to uh, listen to an authoritative figure. And he was put in school the day he arrived in America. So within weeks, he went from dying in a hospital, having not bathed for six years not having any parents or any family or any structure to yeah. to coming to a different country that he doesn't speak the language, being told that he's surrounded by family members that he doesn't know, and being put into school where he's never had any structure before ever. I,
0: I mean, the transformation <laughs> had to just be immense.
1: So he had to first learn English. But he said that his teachers were very patient and forgiving and encouraging. And so he was taught in Quaker schools. And he really can't, like, he speaks so highly of the people he was surrounded by. That he was, he had very few material goods. But he was given every opportunity to develop both his mind and his soul, is how he phrases it. And that's what he needed to be able to become the person that he was. And he says his mom never quite got over everything that she went through. He said that he knew that she continued to have nightmares and, and be a little bit more of a shell of the person that she had previously been. Um, and so he really felt gratitude that he was able to overcome what he had gone through and feel nourished in a sense from from this environment.
0: Yeah. I mean kids are resilient, right? My mom would always say babies bounce. You know? Oh my gosh. (laughs) I mean, I don't have any young children. Um it's
1: true though. But I have
0: I have two younger sisters that are quite a bit younger than me and that I had a you know very small part in in being able to to raise a little bit. And uh, you know, if they fell down or whatever, my mom would always just be like, "Eh, babies bounce.
1: You know, (laughs)
0: She was speaking uh, metaphorically and, and um, in jest. But I think, you know, the human mind is early in development is malleable and you can turn that around. And I think an unfortunate example of that is with his mother who probably underwent ungodly trauma within that concentration camp. And because she was an adult, it was just so much more difficult to overcome than he than, than he was able to do.
1: Yeah. And he went on to... Uh, go to Quaker High School. The teachers there were superb. He said that they were challenging, enthusiastic, competent, and caring. And I think if you're a teacher, like what higher praise could you get than yeah a student saying those things about you? Yeah. And he, we know that he was eventually a great student. He said that he was a good student, but that he wasn't serious through his younger years of schooling and that he didn't become a serious student until he was in college when he realized that that's what he needed to do to contribute to the world.
0: Right. Right.
1: Um, But he loved sports. He played varsity football, soccer, baseball, and he wrestled and he swims. We know that. Mm -hmm. Um, We've seen him swimming at, at the student gym before too. Yeah. But everything that um, he became a part of when he moved to America and was part of this Quaker society healed him and allowed him to learn how to be productive and learned the importance of education and hard work and really his sense of obligation to do something that would better the world.
0: Yeah. It's almost kind of like he had a real, he was very cognitive of the fact that he had experienced something that most people had not experienced. And it was then given an opportunity to overcome that and really wanted to take advantage of it. Didn't want to squander that. Yep. And I think that's really remarkable. Incredible story.
1: I hope one day there's a movie made out of this. There
0: really should be. Maybe we should be the ones to get this under order. Instigate it. Yeah, instigate it
1: because I'm just he, he lives a life that's worthy of following. Yeah. So. Yeah. I'm glad that he's here at Utah. I'm glad I know his story, and I'm glad I get to share his story.
0: Same. I'm really glad we got to share this story. I think it's a, it's a great example for other humans and other scientists. And uh, we look forward to sharing more stories like this with you in the future.
1: I think that that's it for today.
0: All right. We'll see you guys next time. Hey, it's Ty. Thanks for checking out our podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Our email address is scienceonthesidepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks to Atacana Keys for the music and Morgan for producing this episode. We'll see you next time.